please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. Our reading comes from Revelation chapter 22. We'll be covering verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, that, my friends, um, is a preview of where we're headed, um, not only literally, for that is for those in Christ, but also um, sermonically. Um, if you're visiting with us, uh, normally um, we read a text, that is whatever we're studying through, in God's word, and we spend the next hour explaining it. It's called biblical exposition. But today, um, we're going to look at a number of selected texts um, as we continue our Advent season study of the grand record um, of redemption. Um, but before we look to that grand story, I'm going to ask that you bow in prayer with me in preparation to hear from the Lord. Lord, we come again to the throne of grace, and we ask for your blessing to enable me to declare your truth to your people, give us ears to hear, grant us greater understanding as to the depths of condescending grace and the heights of our glorified, ascended Lord. For his name we pray. Amen. Uh, for the past three weeks, we've given our attention um, not only to the Christmas count of our Lord Jesus Christ as we know it, but to the much bigger narrative, and that is the divinely inspired record of creation, fall, and redemption. Um, it's the history of rescue. That is, of God um, rescuing people in desperate need of rescue. The salvation of sinners by Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, through what Jesus Christ will do as promised. That is the grand story, the grand record, rather, of the Christmas story. The reason for the season, it's important for us to understand, is the macro cosmic plan and purpose of the triune God, creator of heaven and earth, to send 
the second person of the Godhead to this earth to reverse the curse and undo what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. I want you to look, I'm on the screen, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. This, friends, is the reason for the season, okay? The reason for the season, the reason for the Son of God, that the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that, that is our course for this morning. To reverse the curse, to restore sinners to fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our subject this morning. He's the subject every Lord's Day. He who is the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus, and no one comes to the Father except through me. As promised in the Garden of Eden, that is chapter 3 and verse 15, immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve, before Adam and Eve were driven out of that garden by God himself, here was the promise. I, says the Lord, will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the serpent, that is to Satan. And between your seed, that is your offspring, and her seed, her offspring, one will come. He, singular, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at that Genesis hope promised. That is Genesis hope promised. Last week, we looked at the center of the story. Hope arrives as promised. Today in the city of David is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now this morning, we want to look at the culmination of the story. Not the end of the story. There is no end to the story, by the way. The culmination of the story. The beginning of the story's consummation, and that is the triumph of hope eternal. Title of the message is Christmas Hope, the Triumph of Hope Eternal. It was, hope, it was promised, that hope, in the Garden of Eden. That hope arrived in time and on time in the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we look at the consummation of that glorious story. That is a new heaven and a new earth where former things will not be remembered. Former things will not be remembered. And there will no longer be heard the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. And the devil will be cast into the lake of fire. That's where we're going. But first, we have to go back to the start again because we're very forgetful people. Amen. Whoever said amen. <laughs> okay, in the beginning, God. Okay, in the beginning, God created Heaven and earth and everything that he made, everything he made was very good, including angels. The crown of creation was man, 
created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. They walked with God, joyfully serving God, joyfully communing with God in God's garden temple. Satan, a created being, a created angel, um, having already rebelled at some point, after everything was declared as very good, arrived on scene intent on ruining God's image in man and destroying God's purpose with man. He tempts them to doubt God. He tempts them to defy his terms and reject his rule over them. And then in Adam's dereliction of duty, having been given dominion over creation itself, does not exercise his God-given dominion over the serpent. And as a result of eating from the forbidden tree, Adam plunged the entire human race into sin and death. That's why you're going to die, because you're in Adam. We bear that consequence. He's the representative head of all humanity. Therefore, we shall die. The consequence of sin is death. And then God brings curses down upon all of creation. He does not curse the man and woman directly, but he curses that which they were given responsibility over. And in turn, the woman suffers greatly with, with pain and childbearing. Um, her desire will now be to usurp authority over her husband. Her husband will now want to oppress the wife. You have the battle of the sexes, and it goes on and on and on. And he will be eat bread all the days of his life, but only by the sweat of his brow. In the midst of that dark dismal situation, God gives hope of a coming redeemer. Proclaimed in that mother promise from which we just read of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there will be one who will come, but he will be struck. And as he struck, he will strike the ultimate blow in destroying the serpent of old, Satan. In case you're here and you think this is some fairy tale, you need to think again. I say that very soberly. You need to think again and you need to listen intently. Lest you be gripped by the lie of all lies. And that is, Satan doesn't really exist. You're proof of his craftiness if you believe he doesn't exist. Can I get a witness? Pass it on. So they give, God gives this gracious hope of this seed promised. The one who will come 
and crush the serpent's head. The one who will come and destroy Satan. So, Adam and Eve begin to look for this offspring. And it proves to be very, very disappointing as brother kills brother. And then you have the hall of death in Genesis chapter 5. Perhaps it's Seth. It wasn't Seth. Well, the line continues, and God provides a little more information along the way. Once Abram is called by God, he says that seed promised will come through your line. And then it will come through his son Isaac, not Ishmael. And then it will come through Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau. Why? Because God's sovereign. It will then come through Jacob's son Judah, not the other 11 brothers, although those 11 brothers will become part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And not only will this promised one come through the line of Judah, he's promised to be a king. A king. Generations later, God says to David, Israel's greatest king, it will be one of your offspring. You're not the, ultimately, you're not the ultimate promised one, but through your line he will come. And then through the prophet Micah, 500 years before Christ is born, comes the announcement that the promised one will be born in Bethlehem. 500 years after that promise, under the mighty Roman government, imperial Rome, that empire, a a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the inhabited earth shall go to their hometowns to register for the census in order to be taxed. So Joseph leads Mary and they go to Bethlehem to be registered. She's expecting a child. She gives birth there. And then angels appear to announce this glorious birth out in the fields to shepherds watching over their flocks by night comes the announcement. When they appear, the shepherds are afraid. Who wouldn't be when angels appear? And they say, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. That means for all people from throughout the world. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is the Christ, and he is Lord, for which we looked at last time. Now look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to obey that law. Now, we go back to Luke chapter 2, and we look at verse 52. When Jesus was 12 years old, we read that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, that does not mean he was ever out of the favor of God, dear friends, okay? All that means is that at each stage of life, the Son of God pleased God the Father in accordance with his age. All the way through life. He grows into manhood. And at the age of 30, 
the prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah are fulfilled by John the Baptist, who Jesus said is Elijah to come. He's the second Elijah. We read in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. In the same book, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, we find its fulfillment in Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. Look at it. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Who's that? John the Baptist. Make ready the way for, for the Lord, the Lord. Make his path straight. So there's John the Baptist preparing the way of Lord God Almighty in a human body. Jesus then begins his public ministry teaching, preaching, declaring the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He calls 12 disciples to himself. His fame spreads throughout the land. He's healing the masses. Great crowds follow him. One day, the disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, Master, everyone is looking for you. Jesus responds, well, let us go somewhere else then. To towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. God had one son. He was a preacher. He preached about God. All the while declaring that he is from God, that he is equal with God, that he is in fact God. Jesus claimed to be the son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath, forgiver of sins, and those, my friends, are all claims of deity. He demonstrated his deity by his authority and sovereignty over nature. Who can speak to a storm and calm it immediately? God. Authority over nature, over disease, over death, and here it is, friends, he manifested his authority over Satan. Once Jesus enters the scene with regard, that is his public ministry, there was intensified demonic activity. All hell seems to have broken loose when Jesus arises on scene and commences his public ministry because the demonic realm, it was totally aware of who he was. You remember this? Demons would speak through the vocal cords of those that they possessed, saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to what? Destroy us. Friends, his public ministry was the initial stage of destroying the works 
of Satan, the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, as he cast out demons by the word of his mouth, in Matthew chapter 12, we're told that all the crowds were amazed. And they said, can it be? Can it be that this is the son of David? In other words, is this the promised one? Is this the seed promised? Is this God's, Yahweh's promised Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, since they couldn't deny he did that, that is, cast out demons by the word of his mouth, they tried to explain how he did it. What was their conclusion? Oh, he does it by way of demonic power. They said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul. The ruler of the demons. Who's the ruler of the demons? Satan. The devil. Now, Beelzebul means Lord of the place. Lord of the dwelling. Now, in response to this accusation, notice what Jesus says in Mark chapter 3 and verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. In case you think those are the words of Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> many people believe that to be the case. He spoke those words quoting our Lord Jesus Christ. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is Finished. In other words, Jesus simply says it just defies common sense to think that I do this work by the power of Beelzebul. Verse 27, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first what? Let's say it. Binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Friends, Satan entered the world, okay, and after Adam's fall, sets up shop saying, this is my house. This is my house. This is my domain. You remember in Job 1, when the angelic realm gathers itself before their creator, and Satan shows up. God says, where have you been? God's not seeking information. Satan's to give an account. And he said this, from going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Well, the only reason he worships you is because you have a hedge of protection around it. Take, him, take it away and he'll curse you to your face. Now, it's interesting that in that statement that I've been going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it, is perhaps, and I paraphrase one of our own, um, Rita Shefalu, who wrote an article on this, that on the basis of Adam and Eve's abdicated role signifies here the evil one's authority over the earth, or at least his assumed authority. 
Are you with me? Consider the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Satan himself, having shown him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, said this, Luke chapter 4 and verse 6, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. If you bow down before me, it's all yours. Now, Satan obviously has an inflated opinion of himself and his power because the only domain of the devil was the evil system that deceived the nations. There was only one covenant people of God. All the other nations of the world were deceived. Amen. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, it is the puffed up conceit of the devil that is his condemnation. Puffed up conceit, which is the root, that is, puffed up conceit, of his primeval fall. Christ comes and he binds Satan. Look at Luke chapter 10. Jesus, remember, he sent out the 70 disciples two by two. They go out and they do ministry in his name. And when they return, they said this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Friends, as Genesis chapter 3 links God's arch enemy with a serpent, his words about treading on serpents and scorpions here is set in the context of overcoming Satan and demons. If you read the book of Revelation, the demonic realm is often referred to as scorpions. So he gives them this power. But Jesus went on to say this, fellas, even though you have this power in my name, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you're saved from going to hell. You want to rejoice over something. So Satan, moving in after the fall under the first Adam, who's a created being, now in the earthly ministry of Jesus, faces the second Adam, who's creator of all. No wonder the demons cried out, have you come to destroy us before the time? He initiates it here. He begins to initiate the judgment on the serpent here, whose messianic mission in part is to plunder and, 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 and destroy the realm of Satan, to plunder the house he thinks he owns. You see this? I hope it excites you as much as it did me this past week with regard to the Christmas story. Jesus was binding and plundering 
the house Satan thought belonged to him. So Jesus lives this perfect, sinless life. He claims to be life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Satan knows his time is short, especially after, as we'll see, he has victory over death. Jesus, during his ministry, calls people to believe on him, to trust in him, and many do. And then something apparently tragic happens. At the age of 33, Jesus rides triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem, and rather than establishing a physical kingdom and destroying all God's physical enemies, as many supposed he would do, A few days later, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and has what we refer to as the Last Supper. And during that evening, Satan entered Judas. And at that moment, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. That was a divine command. Not only for Judas to betray the Lord, but for Satan who indwelt him. A divine command. Jesus came to die. He's falsely accused. He's arrested, put on trial, sentenced to death by way of crucifixion. He's hung on a cross, and he dies. Dead. Once he's confirmed as dead, they take his body down. They place it in a tomb And his intention to crush Satan from all outward appearances seems to have failed miserably. It appears as though he's been crushed, doesn't it? Three days later, a group of women that loved him so dearly, they went to that tomb They found a stone rolled away from the tomb, not to let Jesus out, but to let them in. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, while they were perplexed about this, the scripture says, two angels suddenly stood near. The women were terrified, again, by the presence of angels, and they bowed down their faces to the ground. To which they replied, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen just as he said he would. He conquered death. The grave couldn't hold him. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 disciples at once. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He ascends into heaven before the eyes of his disciples. Forty days later, he he descends by way of his Holy Spirit. He anoints them to go preach the gospel. And for 2,000 years, the risen, ascended Savior continues to increase his kingdom. That is, calling out people from all nations, nations that were at one time what? Deceived. At one time, we're what? Deceived. No longer, no longer deceived. Because he's building his kingdom 
of a people called out from all the nations of the world. Amen. Look at 1 John 2, verse 8. Upon his resurrection and ascension, friends, Jesus Christ set into motion the new creation we read about in Isaiah 65 this morning. He sets it into motion. So there's an overlap of the old with the new. Look at it. The darkness is passing away, and the true light is what? It's already shining. Already. The glory of the kingdom of the king, where the hope promised in Genesis 3 arrived in the fullness of time at the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died and, and raised and ascended, meaning he is eternally triumphant. We read in Colossians 2, verse 15, he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He triumphed over them. The rulers, Satan, demons, let alone the, the mealy-mouthed rulers of this present earth. Pilate, do you not know I have the power to crucify you? You'd have no power at all. Lest my father, what? Gives it to you. That means everyone who's in any public office throughout time is there by the preordained will and providence of God. Amen. Including those who falsely accused him and put him to death. You'd have no power. Now turn to Revelation. Chapter 12. Rest of our time will be in the book of Revelation, which means about another half hour. I don't know why people laugh at that, but <laughs> someone in our church gave a, uh, sent one of our messages online to a friend of theirs who, who goes to, I think, a large evangelical church. He says, what did you think? Did it help? He says, well, I'm going to have to do some studying, especially with that second, first and second Adam thing, which is from the Bible, right? He goes, but man, that was a long sermon. <laughs> it was 52 minutes. It just shows you in our day, we're about, we have a 28-minute attention span because that's how long a typical sitcom is. Sad. Revelation 12, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Friends, that is imagery of Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 9. If you don't under, you'll never understand the book of Revelation if you don't have a grasp on the Old Testament, because all of the imagery comes from the Old Testament, okay? Now, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, remember, they were bowing down. Jacob, his wife, and the 11 sons bowed down to Joseph. So the 12 stars represent the 12 tribes, okay? The nation of Israel. And she, the nation of Israel, 
was with child, and she carried out, and she cried out rather, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Okay, so uh, what's in view here is the Old Testament. Collectively, the Old Testament covenant people of God are in view there, pregnant with this child. Then another sign appeared in the heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she should be nourished for 1,260 days. There was war, that's, that's a symbolic number, friends. There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging, with, waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angel, angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them where? In heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Israel was pregnant with messianic expectation, that is, with the seed of the woman, and believers, old covenant believers, looked with anticipation to the coming one. That is the sign being referred to here in verses 1 and 2. Okay, are you with me? All right. Now, we're shown another sign of a completely different nature in verse 3. Then another sign appeared. In heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, seven heads represent, um, uh, symbolizes um, shrewd and crafty wisdom, Satan. Ten horns signifies great power. Seven crowns, that is diadems, gives him the, the, the appearance of impressive influence, but he's a counterfeit. He is a counterfeit who attempts to rival the omniscience and omnipotence of Almighty God. Verse 4, And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her. You think of the nation of Israel as a whole. You think of a woman on, on a bed re ready to give birth, and there he is standing between her legs, so to speak, waiting to devour this child of promise. So notice the dragon, his tail sweeps down and tramples the stars. Okay, friends, I know you've probably been taught 
That is Satan deceiving a third of the angelic realm and they're cast down. If we read the text carefully, we will see that the dragon has always tried to trample God's people. They are the stars of heaven, verse 1. Right? God's people. The stars. God's people. And that's citing Daniel 8, verse 10. You can go read it later. Daniel 8, verse 10. And again... The revelation always takes us back to pictures and symbols in the Old Testament. Many of them come from Daniel. Now remember, the, the original and ultimate background for the vision is Genesis 3, where God pitted the serpent against the woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And Satan tried to trample God's people to death in order to eliminate them in keeping this promised one from coming to earth. Make sense? If it doesn't, go listen to our series on Revelation. We, we go verse by verse through the entirety of Revelation. Verse 5, she gave birth. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, promise of Messiah all throughout the Old Testament. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's his death and resurrection and ascension. Fulfillment of Micah 5. This male child who rules the nations with a rod of iron is the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Glory. Now, verse 7, upon his ascension, a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Notice who initiates the war. It's not Satan. It's Michael and his angels. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. That is to say, prior to this redemptive event of Christ's resurrection and ascension, Satan apparently had access to heaven where he continually accused and assaulted the loyalty of God's people, i.e., Job 1. Where you been? Walking to and fro. Face of the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? Ah! Ah! He only serves you because you have a hedge of protection around him. Take it away and he'll curse you to your face. And he doesn't. That's because you haven't touched his flesh. Touch his flesh and he'll curse you. Go ahead and have at his flesh, but you will not take his life. Accusing the loyalty of God's people and by implication, he accuses God's own character. By accepting such sinful wretches as us, he who is holy. So upon his ascension, Satan is cast down to earth, right? And friends, by the way, this is key. What we just read in chapter 12. This is key in order to understand Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Now, we're going to go back and look at Revelation 12 in a moment, so you can just listen to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, or 2 and 3. 
if you like. The dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, was bound for a thousand years, thrown into the pit, shut and sealed over him so that he might not, what? Deceive the nations any longer. Being thrown in a pit, does that mean he has absolutely no influence whatsoever? Oh, no. But so that he might not deceive the nations for a thousand years. What's a thousand years? That's the time between his first and second coming. It's symbolic numerology. We see numbers throughout Revelation. They're all symbolic, and it simply means a long period of time. He's bound from deceiving the nations between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Satan do until that time? Back to chapter 12, verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. He's a mad dog, bleeding to death, knowing his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Look at verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with her, with the rest, that is, of her children, who were the rest of her children. Read on. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, his church. Until he returns again, she will be persecuted. Satan will seek to destroy, but he can't touch your soul. Period. Amen. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So this child, born of a virgin, Yahweh's promised Messiah, he came, he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended. He is the Lord of glory, and when he returns, hope is no longer hope. Amen? It's a consummated reality. We see now with eyes of faith, hope. But this will be a consummated reality. So when the thousand-year reign of, the, 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 of Christ from heaven is completed, Jesus will return now or then as sovereign judge. Judge. Revelation 19. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. 
and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Wow. Judge. Look at verse 20. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. It's an invisible mark. You're marked already, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Can you see it? I don't see it. I see fruit of it with y'all. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, you know, and all that. And those who worshipped his image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's just apocalyptic imagery for the fierce wrath and justice of God. Okay? They're not real birds. It's just symbolic. Which means the reality is worse than the picture, by the way. Far worse. Now, another picture of the same judgment, the book of Revelation, remember, is recapitulation. You see Jesus come back like seven times in Revelation. How many times does Jesus come back in glory? Once. We just see seven pictures of it through the Revelation. So here's recapitulation. Look at Revelation 20, verses 10 through 15. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, According to their deeds, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What's going to happen to people who are presently in hell? At the second coming, they're going to be thrown in the lake of fire forever and ever. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So Satan and his minions, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, will be overthrown absolutely, finally and ultimately destroyed, never ever again will they torment God's people. Because Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, raised, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. From there, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That's what Christmas is about. To be cast into the lake of fire, along with all the people from throughout time who have served Satan, his seed, his offspring. All who belong to Christ from throughout all time, all those from Abraham and back, all the way back to Adam, those who look forward to the promised seed of hope in Genesis 3, and those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the hope and the seed who's arrived, 
will dwell with Christ forever. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. That doesn't mean you won't be able to surf. There'll be a sea indeed, but sea meant trouble and turbulence in the Old Testament. And as far as the oceans go, it just will be that there won't be, uh, it won't divide peoples and nations any longer. That's another picture. Amen? No more sea, no more trouble. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That is the dwelling place of God. And he will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Are you troubled today? You hurt today? Are you in pain today? It'll be remembered no more there. Remembered no more. Wiped away from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And that light is already shining, isn't it? And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and moral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look at verse 27. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written, where? The Lamb's book of life. Those who entrust themselves to the Lamb of God who was crucified, who bore God's wrath on a Roman cross. For those who know not Christ, right here, it'll be a day of absolute terror. Absolute terror when all of their public and private sins are revealed and they will hear the final verdict. It's an irreversible verdict. Eternal, eternal punishment. Before I wrap up, are you here this morning in that category? Are you, are you here this morning as one who up to this point in time have rejected Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory and the only way to heaven? If it is, this is what awaits you. The hope is repent, repent. That means change your thinking about God, almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Turn away from your transgressions and turn to him by faith and receive the righteousness you need. It's his righteousness. You don't have any in and of yourself and you shall be saved from this. 
repent and believe today. That's a command from the word of God. And if the Holy Spirit of God is here working in your life and he's brought you here by way of divine appointment, today's the day of salvation. Repent and believe and you shall be saved. Well, you don't know what I've done. He does. His blood can't cover my sin. Repent of that pride. Repent of that pride. There's no sin his blood can't atone for. But there's no second chances if you die without him. For the Christian believer, judgment day is not future. There is no judgment day for you. Judgment day for the Christian is past. It has passed. It's done. When Jesus died on the cross, he was being punished for all of my public and private sins. Those of you who are in Christ, he was being punished by God the Father on the cross for all of your secret, hidden, private, and public sins. Washed, cleansed, forgiven. You've already been judged in Christ. You've been crucified in Christ. You've been buried in Christ, with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. And therefore, you'll ascend to Christ. You will not taste God's wrath. So Revelation 21 and 22 describes the glory, the glorious inheritance that awaits all those who are in Christ. Amen? Merry Christmas. There's your gift of remembrance. Finally, in an eternity of absolute rightness, this is where we started this morning, Revelation 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Who's the lamb? Christ and him crucified, raised and ascended. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. Adam was created to do what? To serve and enjoy God. We will serve and forever enjoy God in eternity future. Right there. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. And they will not have the need of light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. They will reign forever and and ever. Notice in the new Eden. We drink freely from the river of life. We eat freely from the tree of life. That's the tree Adam was barred from when he was cast out of the Garden of Eden. God's garden what? Temple. This new heaven and new earth is God's garden temple. The presence of God forever. In the new Eden, nations will be joined as one people. No longer divided by race culture, social status, or land. All God's people are one together in his presence forever and ever. No more pain. <sighs> Frank, my brother, where are you? You saw me getting up out of that chair this morning. He's a few years older than I am. He goes, oh, I see your pain getting out of that chair. <laughs> Gone. 
Amen. No more tears, no more death, no more sadness, because the child promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the one who was anticipated for, the one who was hoped for, arrived on scene that first Christmas, and he went on to crush the head of the serpent, destroying the works of the devil. And he continues to do so to this very day. You know what you're going to hear, Christian? The only thing you're going to hear when you stand before the Lord, not the only thing, but one thing I know for certain, because it's biblical, enter in to the joy of your Lord. Enter in. You didn't earn it. He earned it for you. To close. From Spurgeon this week, the 20th, I think. Quote, this is the very joy which we are to possess in heaven. When the heavens ring with well done, well done, you shall partake in the reward. You have toiled with him. You have suffered with him. You shall now reign with him. You have sown with him. You shall reap with him. Your face was covered with sweat like his, and your soul was grieved for the sins of men as his soul was. Now shall your face be bright with heaven's splendor, as is his countenance. And now shall your, shall your soul be filled with beatific joy, even as his soul is. Amen, end quote. So, beloved, as we labor by the sweat of our brow, as we struggle, as we currently, stressfully sometimes suffer because of the first Adam, let us never forget, may we never lose sight of what awaits us in the second Adam. It's right here. This is why we continue. This is why we run the race with endurance. These are glories, my friends, that are beyond comprehension. So this Christmas, let us trust, love, and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, promised in the Garden of Eden, arrived in time and on time, went to the cross, was crucified, raised again, ascended, and he's coming again, having prepared a place for you by way of that cross. Amen? amen. And amen. Father, we do thank you for the glorious gospel. We do thank you for the proof of Scripture over and over and over again. Forgive us of our faithlessness. Increase our faith. Help our unbelief. Heal our, our stresses, our weaknesses. Strengthen us. Gird us up, not in and of ourselves, but by your Spirit, we pray, with a glorious anticipation of this hopeful expectation fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.